You're listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. Today, we'll be talking to researcher Nina Saha. She will share tips for teachers about how to read research, including meta-analysis, and tell us what reading research is hot right now. Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. We are ready for today's guest to share tips for educators reading or reviewing research and what's hot right now. Yeah, I can't wait. We're here with Nina Saha, who we found through Reading Research Recap, which was a newsletter turned into a YouTube channel and gave us a lot of information for some of our podcasts. Yeah. Nina, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Yeah. Well, we talk a lot about reading science research on this podcast. Um, So we're thinking before we dive into research with you, we should take a step back and kind of ground ourselves in science. So we're hoping that you you might be able to share what is science for? I know that's like the biggest question, (laughs) but um, we thought it was important to start broadly. Yeah, well, that's a, it's almost like a trick question, right? Because <laughs> um, science is very hard to define, right? And sort of all these definitions that we have about it, there's always an exception. And I think a really good example, and I have a link of this, is that there was, you know, once a theory is, you know, proven false by observational or experimental data, you should get rid of it, Right. But that's not what they did with like the theory of gravity. And I think it was like Neptune or Saturn, one of those planets, they found an anomaly in it and, but they still held on. And a few years later, they discovered another planet that was like affecting it. And so, you know, there's, it's very hard to sort of come to a consensus on what science is, but I think your question was, what is science for? So I've already gone a little bit (laughs) off track, but in education, it's to figure out evidence-based practices. We want to know what works for children. And there are some things that science, you know, cannot answer. And I think it's important to state that at the start, sort of moral judgments, ethical things, value, science can't answer those and never will be able to. And then there's sort of these questions that science, you know, maybe can answer, but we don't really look to science to answer them. Like there's probably evidence about, you know, brushing your teeth or something and like randomized control trials on it. But like most of us, it's obvious, right? We don't need that. Um, And then I like to, you know, for back to education, though, in terms of what practices are most effective for most students, We really do want to know that. And it's often counterintuitive to our observations. And if you listen to Asolda's story and the whole Fountas and Pinnell, what happened there, you know, our observations of students aren't always correct. So it's a great starting point. I have links in um, that, you know, I'll share with the audience here too, that go into that. It's like pseudoscience often leads to really good science. So we don't want to get rid of those, you know, this sort of science fiction, fantasy, old wives tales. Those observations are critical for coming up with theories or hypotheses that can then later be tested. 
So science is for figuring out those, you know, what works for the most children. And even I, we could talk about this later, individuals. I think that there's going to be more, there's this whole fascinating field of research called single case research design. It doesn't mean a single person though. It could still mean, you know, groups of kids, but it's, it tells you what works for more individual students. And it's really fascinating. Sorry, long-winded answer to your question. That's okay. I actually expected a really long answer to that because I feel like it was very broad. Yeah. So thank you. For, thank you for... Yeah. I think that's also really helpful to contextualize outside of education too. So I appreciate those examples that really ground us in like everyday experiences of, you know, what is it for and and when is it helpful? Um, so... I, I would love to hear from you. I mean, you took the research from that, you, that you've been reading a whole lot about and um, you started reading Research Recap. And we think that's so helpful to give teachers access to research. So uh, I'm wondering if you might be able to share some tips you can give busy teachers who are looking for reading research now that we know what science is for in education. Yeah. And so again, this is like a tough question because there's so many resources out there. And actually there's even research on those resources, which I found and kind of blew my mind when I found this research article that tested all these different sites and how easy it was to get to the evidence-based practice and whether you could trust it. And I think my key tips though would be Find blogs that you feel are comfortable, like if you're comfortable with the authors, you know, they're experts in the field and you like their style of writing um, that translate. So the Reading League Journal is a good place to start for translational research. Um, other reading experts have their own blogs, too, that they share. But if you really want the direct, you know, primary sources, the, the research papers, I would say, you know, Obviously, look at the Reading Research Recap. That's the monthly blog put out by Metametrics. It's great. It collates or curates, you know, the research according to like the headings. Um, you can also go to open source sites. You can use Google Scholar. Sometimes it's a little bit overwhelming. And because it's for all science fields, you don't always like if you type in morphology, it might come up with like biology stuff. So you have to be a little bit specific. But if there's an open access article, it'll let you know. Um, Ed Archive, Sci Archive, these are run by the Open Science Framework. So a lot of these are preprints. So if the readers aren't aware what that is, it's just a pre, it's sometimes before it's peer reviewed. Before it goes peer reviewed, you can put up a manuscript. Um, and even after it's peer reviewed, you could say this is, you know, the unformatted peer reviewed or in press article. Um, but also, um, one thing I heard a lot with the Reading Research Recap is, how can I go back, you know, what, what what's the recent research on, I don't know, morphology, for example. And even I would have to kind of go back or I remembered an article and, and I, I'd have to search for it by scrolling through my old um, blogs on Substack, which was where I originally started it. And then when Metametrics acquired it, they put it on their blog on the Metametrics site, but it was still very hard to search. You'd have to click on each thing. And so that's what same page is kind of new side project that I'm figuring out. Um, you know, where to take it next, but you can go to same page, type in morphology, open access, and you'll see actually, I think at least there should be four or five papers that are open access. That's so neat. Yeah, Nina. So, so. we'll share same page a whole lot as this podcast launches. We'll also um, put it in our show notes. So same page reading is it? 
I have it up. Same page. Dot, dot org. Yeah. yeah. I was like, dot org. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering though, if you might be able to dive into before we kind of get ahead a, a little bit more with research, can you dive into peer review? Just like pause. Cause I think that's so important. And I, you and I had a conversation about this and I was just, I learned so much. So I feel like our teacher listeners will really learn too. It was, you were so, you explained it so easily to me. So what is, what, why is it important for like things to be peer reviewed and like, why does that matter? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's not clear to people kind of outside of academia and even in academia, I have to say it's nebulous be nebulous in the sense that different um, journals will use different methods. So there's always kind of an exception. I'll tell you the general sort of overview. So peer review is when you write up a paper, you know, you've done your experiment, you write up your results and you submit it to a journal. The first thing that usually happens is, you know, the editor of that journal kind of checks it for overall. Is it, is it suitable for our journal, right? Does it fit here? If it is, they'll send it out to content area experts or methods experts who will review it. Usually it's about three to five people um, and they will, uh, then the editor will kind of come back, synthesize those, give you, you know, the main points. They'll either reject it outright, um, accept with major revisions or accept with minor, some sort of flavor of those categories. And it's important. And this, I think this is interesting in, in prepping kind of for this podcast, I learned a little bit more too about it. It's important because scientists have said it's important. And I know that that's kind of a weird answer, but hear me out. So they've decided, you know, that this is the way to get trusted science out there. And the research, though, surprisingly on peer review, doesn't show that it's, you know, more effective. Like there's not research saying that it's like the gold standard, the best way to do it. And there's actually some detractors in it for it. But my what I think, and others have said this too, I think Shanahan in one of his blogs says, it'll catch major um, mistakes or errors and it'll check, just make sure you have the right information there. Science is, it has to be replicated and it's communal, right? So if you're going through a system outside of peer review, scientists, experts in your field aren't going to see it because that's not the accepted way that science works as, you know, society has decided or the society of scientists. It's a social endeavor by people seeing the data, you know, testing it out in their lab, trying to replicate it. And so peer review basically is important because scientists have said it's important. This is their process they adopted. Well, it does make me feel better. Like I, when I think about it, I think, you know, if we're putting so much stock in what's science, right? Like mm-hmm. this is research says that science says this, then we don't want just anyone to be able to come up and say like, hey, I did this experiment or I, I wrote this research article and you should believe me. So I don't know. It gives me some trust that like at least some other people have checked this out. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Right. When you have like three content area expertise, you know, experts checking over what you've done, you have some level of confidence that, okay, this is, you know, sort of decent. Right. Right. Yeah. That's interesting, though, about the research that the research about. I know. I found that interesting, (laughs) too. Yeah. I don't don't know what to do with that in my brain. (laughs) (laughs) Think more about it. Well, we wanted to talk a little bit about, you you know, you made this, we mentioned it already, but we'll say it again, samepagereading.org, which is just 
you could lose yourself for hours on that page. I, at least I can. Um, and you really made it because they were, you saw, you specifically saw four ways to improve how we get research to teachers. Do you want to dive into those four things and tell us about them? Yeah, of course. And so I didn't see a good framework when I was kind of doing my research for this. So I came up with my own and I might tweak this, you know, over the next few months, but there's problems of access, right? So getting um, open access papers, and don't get me started on that. A lot of this research is funded by federal grants, which is funded by tax dollars. So this shouldn't be a problem, but, you know, because of the publishers and I've linked to some, you know, stories about that and paywalls, access does remain a problem. That's a whole nother, you know, issue. So, but access is the first thing. Then aggregation, um, let's say even everything was, you know, open access. How do you go about, you know, there's hundreds of journals, which are the good ones, how do you, you know, bring those together? And for me, I've been doing it manually, but at same page, we're working on trying to automate this. So I get, you know, so many emails, not hundreds. So I was going to say hundreds, but it's not hundreds <laughs> a day. I get a lot of emails a day of like alerts and kind of cross-checking, you know, different Google alerts with like research um, alerts for online first articles and triaging those. So it's a lot of work right now, but we, we, we're coming up with a method to make that easier. Um, so that's the second thing is aggregation is a problem. And then there's kind of, well, two, maybe three more. So understanding synthesis and translation, understanding, you know, let's say you have the article in front of you. Um, how do you make sense of it? Right. There's a lot of scientific jargon. How do you understand the stats and the methods? And I don't have a few tips for teachers that we can get to on that, but there's that's, you know, this might be an unpopular opinion, but I do think teachers need, you know, a course in scientific design or logic and causal inference as part of their teacher prep programs. This idea that like, no, we need um, gatekeepers who will always kind of translate the research and then give it because teachers won't understand it. You look back through history, sharing of information and knowledge has always been in the favor of, you know, like, people like eventually getting it and learning it, right? But people like the Gutenberg and the press and everything, it's like, no, keep the information away because there will be like social uprising and, you know, riots and stuff with all this information. Never, that stuff doesn't happen. And teachers need to have access to this, even if they don't understand it all, but there are a lot of tools to help with understanding. And then synthesis, like one single paper doesn't really mean anything. And so that's kind of crazy, right? You have to take that paper and see, well, were there five other papers on the topic that said something the opposite, right? You have to view that paper within the body of the scientific research on it. And so that's another kind of problem. We have methods to deal with that, such as meta-analysis. And then I kind of added this last one, I think, since we talked, which is translation. And that's, you know, synthesis is great, but then how do you, you can have, you know, basic science papers and synthesize those that have nothing to do with the classroom and how to translate that. So that's kind of another issue I'm trying to think through. And to be perfectly clear, same page is just now addressing access and aggregation. I have ideas to help with understanding and synthesis and translation, but right now they are very bare bones, such as like pulling out, you know, key statements if there's something that translates directly to the classroom, right? So working on those other ones. I was just gonna say, I love the idea of translation. I'm really glad you brought that up because even, you know, if it's 
is a classroom, it doesn't mean that classroom looked like your classroom in the study, right? So you have to also think, does does this work for me in my classroom with my students just because it worked for that that classroom in the study. That is so important, Melissa, because that's one of the tips that you can immediately hand off to teachers. Check the population. How are they describing it? Because if it's not your students, if you don't see your student demographics reflected there and like the racial breakdown, the SES status, the bilingual, that you're right. That study doesn't have, you know, like the geeky term is external validity. It doesn't, you know, generalize to your students. So that's not one that will be helpful. That's a good point. I was thinking a lot about the the synthesis point you made. Like, you know, I think it's easy to see what we want to see as we read research and just have that like confirmation bias, like, oh yeah, okay, so this thing I am doing is the right thing to do instead of seeing the things that are harder to see, which are the things that maybe we don't want to see, that it's not I don't know. It's hard. (laughs) Yeah. It's my pet peeve when I see people, even researchers will do this, where they'll like post one study on Facebook. And it's like, okay, great. But what else is out there? Right? Like it may answer your question, but it's like, we know there's other. So it's always good to give like, you know, some sort of couching of the background of like, here's what we know. Because you, you know, you have to one study could disagree with another. And like, I think I linked to a really fascinating New York Times article maybe two years ago about these two randomized controlled trials. And it was for Alzheimer's medication that, you know, directly contrasted each other. Like they, they had results that um, were in opposition. So it's like, what do you do then? And of course, like you said, Lori, you'll, if you'll only see the one that you kind of want to believe with, maybe not on purpose, right? But like confirmation bias. Yeah. Yeah, there's almost always like, you always feel like if you have something you want to prove, you can almost always find some research study. That exactly, <laughs> right? Yeah. You could find something. There's something to prove that this is right. I'm wondering yeah. if since we're on this, if we could talk a little bit about meta-analyses. You brought those up and I know that I've seen them can talked about a bit more as we're talking about the science of reading. And sometimes I worry because it feels like, hey, if this is called a meta-analysis, like stamp done, this is the end of the story. Like don't ask any more questions. And I get worried, but like, I don't even quite know what a meta-analysis <laughs> entails and how to, <laughs> how they come al- along. So I'm wondering if you could just dive into that and tell us all you know about those. Yes. And I'll put the caveat out here. I am not an expert by any means, but I will share what I know because I did do um, a meta-analysis, a network meta-analysis, which is like a different type as part of my graduate work at Vanderbilt. So, But I will tell you what I know about it. First, though, I want to back up because I want to make two points about this. Meta-analyses are kind of put there as this almost above like the gold standard of RCTs, right? You've got these great, amazing meta-analysis and you take what they say and like that's, you know, the final word on it. And we have to kind of step back. Science is nuanced, right? What is the question you want answered first? Because I think meta-analysis are important, but they are not the be-all end-all. If let's say you are teaching, and this is a very, um, this isn't a weird scenario that I'm going to bring up. I think people might think like, oh, she's just trying to find an exception here. But if you're a teacher, we kind of know what works for the majority of students, right? But you might have that exception student. And I certainly did. Nothing was working. And, you know, so you type in, you want to know what works for that student. Normal group studies and especially meta-analyses aren't going to be able to answer that because of the way they aggregate the studies and the statistics. They don't even tell you, which is a problem, some of the demographics. 
And so I want to get away from this idea that meta-analysis are great. They're great for when you want to know general statements about, you know, the average student. They will never be able to tell you about those exceptions that you're trying to figure out what works for. And that's that single case research design I was talking about. And I do think this is my like 10 year bet that with better ways of aggregating and like figuring out, you know, collating information, maybe even with like AI machine learning, we're going to be able to get to a place where you have like a drop down of like this student, you know, this, um, these are their scores. Find me the single case study that showed that worked for like increasing oral reading fluency for that. So, but that aside, so that's the main point. But let's say you do kind of want to know generally what works. Meta-analyses take several studies um, and they should all be alike, similar in design. And if they're not, then you want to figure out, you can do like moderation analyses later to figure out the um, aspects that made the studies, you know, maybe, maybe if there's variation, but you want to um, choose similar studies with similar um, interventions and that have a control. So you want high quality studies, is I guess is what I'm trying to say. And that's, you know, the inclusion criteria for those really matters and should be detailed. There's this great blog. So Robert Slavin or Slavin, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. He has these great series of blogs on meta-analyses and he gives these sort of three things that you want to be um want to pay attention to, or it might be four actually. Um, but I would suggest that readers take a look at that because some of those are kind of obvious, like red flags that they can check for. And I think one has to do a sample size or inflated effect sizes. If you see meta-analyses that are reporting really high, you know, above like 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6. And I think one in his example had like 1.2 effect, like of an effect size, which is crazy large. Um, you want to be cautious. You want to go back to those original studies, see if they belonged there. Because like that one that had a 1.2, I think he says it was like an example of like tennis. It didn't even have to do with like education. So always go back to the original source and researchers need to be good about describing the original studies in there and the populations too. Um but this idea of like kind of garbage in, garbage out holds. You really, he's, Robert was a big um, proponent of high quality um, meta-analyses and inclusion standards. And you should have those. And I think he does as he has like that. He ran, he ran the best evidence encyclopedia B that did high quality meta-analyses. And I think there was like one other thing I wanted to say about, oh, meta, meta-analyses now are becoming popular. Whoa. But Yeah. Which is like two steps removed. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, well, I've seen it. Um, I've seen people kind of doing these and I'm like, wait a minute. Like, what was the, con like, I always want to see the data, right? And like the original studies, like what were they on to give me like a sense? It's like knowing the population demographics of the students in a study, right? Well, the population here are studies because it's a study of studies. And so in those, you're even further away, right? Because like, you don't so know. So they're just like compiling the meta-analysis? Yes, they're taking several. But it it's like a game of telephone almost in a way, right? It gets distorted. So you just have to be careful. Um, meta-analyses are great when done correctly. That sounds really great. Like imagine if I was if I wasn't having this conversation with you and I had heard that, I would be like, wow, that sounds really fancy. Meta, meta, that must be super, super valid, you know, like even more valid than right. the first kind of meta. 
Right. Not necessarily though, right? Like education solved. We can do meta metas now. Like we know everything that works, but it's, it's not true. It's a back to that match of like the population too. You have to know um, all that information to see if it works for your students. I am wondering if we just want to kind of leave teachers with um, as they're heading back to school, right? Like sharing some reading research topics of interest or current research that you're seeing, Nina. We know that you're really great about knowing the the latest and greatest research. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Um, So I see so much research, but I think my sort of the trends that I'm seeing that I find interesting are... And this might be because we kind of know now phonics is explicit, systematic, um, cumulative, what we have to do for that. And so I'm seeing a lot more on morphology, fluency, and comprehension, and specifically morphology. I find this fascinating, and I think that's going to be like a, you know, a trend kind of alert that in the next few years is going to become more important, and we're going to see sort of more instruction and um, programs, products around that. And which is good because English is morphophonemic. We're not a true alphabetic language. Our words are composed of not just sound information, but sound and meaning information. And um, kind of a phrase that's used with morphology a lot is like islands of regularity, right? They provide those morphemes. So morphemes, if the audience doesn't know, are just the smallest unit of meaning in a word. So like with the word jumped, the jump part is the stem, the t spelled as ed is, you know, like the suffix to indicate like past tense and those that, so that's two morphemes. And so that island of regularity would be that ed because we see that again in other words a lot. It's a, it's a sound that can also, you know, that's pretty consistent. Sometimes it's the id, like in cheat, cheated versus jumped, but they still kind of give you word meaning too. So morphology is really interesting to me. And I've linked, um, if the audience is interested, to three sort of studies on that different of different flavors. So the first one is this really cool kind of basic science theoretical background modeling um, paper. And it's called Executive Functions and Morphological Awareness Explain the Shared Variance Between Word Reading and Listening Comprehension. I really liked it because now we're seeing all these models that kind of go beyond the simple view model, right? Simple view, we've got, you know, word reading skills, oral language, yields good reading comprehension, but there's a lot more. Simple is great. We like parsimony in science, but sometimes it's too simple. And so now we're trying to figure out what are the other factors? And apparently morphology is a big one, actually, that explains a lot of variants. When I was reading the paper, actually, I thought it was funny because you don't usually use words like striking findings or something. And then the author did in this one, which I think is great that that got through peer review because usually we're always hedging. Like, I wish I had the example of this other paper I had just read where it's like potentially very modest effects. And I was like, that's science for, but like this paper was like striking findings of morphology. I don't have the quote in front of me, but it was, it was an interesting read. So not, not an experimental study. It was correlational, you know, structural equation modeling, but still very interesting showing like the, the morphology is an important link between the two. That's what I was just going to ask Nina, because I can see morphology important for both, you know, learning spelling, but also comprehending, but you're talking about, they're talking about both, right? That Yes. It's like the bridge between. Exactly. Yeah. And the active view model too, um, 
which is, I believe, Nell Duke and Matt Burns had a big meta Cartwright. Okay, Cartwright. Okay. And so they also have morphology playing a big role, I believe, in like the bridging processes part. So it's good. And it makes sense why there's both because it gives information about meaning, but it's also there for sound. So it's like the bridge. Um, And then um, the next sort of study on morphology that I'd like to share is one that's a little bit, I hope, more practical for teachers because this was a corpus study. So a large language, what they did, this was in the UK. Um, They took um, a large body of children's literature and did all these like statistics on it, like calculating frequency and stuff. And this paper is open access um, and has a list of suffixes by frequency, which I think it's always great when the researchers put that in because like, ooh, let's go check and see like what are the ones I should maybe teach right? Like it's really nice. So I wanted to share that one. That's called Effects of Target Age and Genre on Morphological Complexity in Children's Reading Material. I didn't go do like a deep dive on it because I don't think they had the suffixes ranked by like frequency. They had it done different ways. But so I don't know like the top ones, but I would recommend doing that if you want to teach um, certain, you know, high important um, morphological units or suffixes in this case. And then the last one on morphology was an RCT. So I found this one really interesting. Oh, and this is actually the one that only found very modest and used very hedging wording. (laughs) Um, So this one's an intervention study. What they did was they compared so third grade students in Canada, but they were English speaking. And uh, the title was called Contrasting Direct Instruction and Morphological Decoding and morphological inquiry analysis interventions in grade three children with poor morphological awareness. So what they did is they started with like about 100, 163 students, screened them on morphological awareness skills, and only took the ones with poor morphological awareness skills. Then they had three conditions, um, two interventions. One was this sort of direct decoding one where it was print-based, and the other was inquiry-based where they asked questions about like, um, is the un in uninvite important versus the un in uncle, right? Kind of like teaching those strategies. And then they had the control, which was business as usual. And that one, they didn't have any sort of um, morphological training or um, instruction in that one. And, you know, a little bit disappointing. I thought, you know, they'd find they had all these post-test measures. So they had a post right immediately. They tested, you know, on word reading, reading vocabulary, sentence comprehension. I think, the, And like the authors, there are very modest effects for maybe reading vocabulary for the direct decoding intervention, I believe. Maybe one other, but not kind of across the board, large effects. And um, that the delayed post-test, none of the effects kind of stayed. So, you you know, if you do, if you spend all this time and resources, you want to make sure that the effects of the intervention last, right? And at post-test, I think none of them were significant, but I would, so kind of keep your, keep your eye on this though. Like, even though it was just like, you know, it wasn't null effects across the board, like there's something there. So I think we're going to figure out how, you know, to better make, make these more effective, these morphological awareness interventions. Um, That's what I was just so. going to ask Nina when you were talking about it. Like, what do you do with that? Because you, know, you just yeah. talked about other studies that did show that it's important to teach morphology. And I think it's that's one of those things, too, where you're like, it just makes sense, right? It's like the brushing your teeth example. Like, it just makes sense to teach our kids yeah. morphology to make sense of words. But then a study comes along that doesn't show much. 
Yeah. What, what do you do is, as a teacher? Yeah. As a teacher, you know, and that's why translation is so tricky because these are the studies, right? We have good solid theoretical evidence. We've got, you know, corpus, that study about the, we know there's a lot of morphemes. We know our language, but then when it comes to doing the intervention, it's like, how come there weren't you know, great effects. And I think it's like, we, it's just so hard to find good implementation, like translatable studies. And that's just, you know, the, sh- the short answer, the kind of cop-out answer though, is like humans are messy. There's so many variables going on. There's so many things that are tricky. To, um, but I think they'll get there. And I, and this is just one paper, but the authors did say, even though it's very modest effects, you know, those strategies still work. Like trying to tease it, that sort of word inquiry of like, you know, figuring out if the un and uninvite is the same as un and uncle. No, they're different, right? Yeah, so that's a lot about morphology. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I was just going to ask if there was, because you mentioned fluency and comprehension. Did you want to talk about those? So fluency, I think, um, I've been seeing a lot about reader's theater. And admittedly, I didn't really know what that was, but it's pretty much what it sounds like. You get up there and you kind of like give students line, and you guys could jump in and correct me if I'm wrong, but students get to kind of act out the dialogue lines, right? And so... I, um, I saw a lot about this, I should say, on like these Facebook groups about, you know, transforming, you know, decodable passages into like reader's theater things. It's like, oh, that's interesting. And then I was like, is there any research on this? Well, this study kind of came out right as I was thinking about this. And it's a systematic review and meta-analysis of the reader's theater impact on the development of reading skills. And they found pretty large effects. Um, I didn't go through to see if there's red flags, but by skimming it, I think it's um, it looks legitimate to me and it's peer reviewed. So that's a good one to kind of look through to maybe see different flavors of interventions for readers theater, different programs that work. Yeah, that's a nice one because I think sometimes people can think it's just like trying to make it fun. <laughs> yeah. But to know that it also has some validity behind it is good. <laughs> Agreed. When it's fun and valid, that's even yeah. better. And I'm especially yeah. excited because it's a meta-analysis that is a a good example of a valid meta-analysis that we're giving everyone in the show notes. And um, I mean, it's Reader's Theater, which is really, I I think, fairly easy to implement. So (laughs) fun, easy, and valid, all really good things. (laughs) (laughs) Our friend Chase Young will be very excited. (laughs) And then I think I just put, I have a few on comprehension. Not going to go into that. One's a survey. Well, I guess I'll go into it a little bit. So one's a survey study of kids, um, sorry, of teachers in Australia. But I love survey studies. I just love seeing what teacher, you know, when people do this, because we have to know where teachers are at before you can, you know, try and sort of quote unquote fix things or develop. And so this one was interesting. I think they found that And they found this, I think, in like every survey study I have read about, no matter the topic, that there's contradicting answers. So teachers will know a little bit about something, but then like they'll contradict themselves later, which is just means I think we're not doing as good of a job as, you know, science communicators or researchers or what have you getting that information out there. But so that one's there. I think it's open access. Um, Then I also, you know, sometimes there's with science of reading, there's this focus on phonics and first graders. And so for comprehension, I have this one for fourth grade students and it's in social studies. And I think I actually heard the first version of this at SSSR last summer. Um, It's a professional development program to increase vocabulary and comprehension in an embedded like social studies fourth grade. So that's a cool one. I think if you, you know, teach 
older students or um, want to see how you can do like reading interventions in other, you know, not the content, not literacy blocks. So I tried to put something for everyone. And then the last thing I just wanted to touch on, which I think also trend alert, like morphology, I think is going to be big, but using data to personalize instruction, you know, when you think of like the five pillars, that's not one of them, right? But it should be embedded in like all of them, you should be using data. And so I linked to one about um, how using targeted reading instructions is better than, you know, just giving like a one size fits all, right? You want to use children's data to give them the right intervention. So I I put that one there. Yeah, that's so important. I think, Nina, I think you're going to win the prize for the longest show notes in history of our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I do write blogs on reading research. So what did you expect? I'm going to put lots of links and summaries. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we, before we come to a close? No, I'm just grateful that you guys have me on here. And I think it's so important. You know, I may not have done like the best job in explaining, I think some of these ideas that are so, you know, science is so nuanced, right? And I think we just need more of more discussion on this and more people talking about the nuance because it's really hard to convey some of these you know ideas and like causal inference and what makes a study good and when should you trust it so um no I'm just grateful to be here and I don't have any there might be something later where I add to the show notes (laughs) and be like here's something I messed up and I love that discussion about the nuance because I think I'm seeing a lot of like I'm right you're wrong kind of battles happening versus like these kinds of discussions of, okay, let's like talk through, yeah, let's talk through what, what this actually means. Well, thank you. Yeah, of course. Yeah. This was really fun. Thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. Literacy lovers to stay connected with us, sign up for our email list at literacypodcast.com. And to keep learning together, join the Melissa and Lori love literacy podcast, Facebook group, And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If this episode resonated with you, take a moment to share with a teacher friend or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Just a quick reminder that the views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds, PBC, or its employees. We appreciate you so much, and we're so glad you're here to learn with us.